Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we are back, and we are going to go right to the phones. And joining us is somebody who makes the fall more difficult for me than ever because there are so many things to do, and he talks about all of them. Nate Zielinski. <laughs> No, it is morning, a tough. Terry, how are you? It's a tough time, isn't it? I mean, we've got we've got small games. Some of that has started. We had some of the waterfall, and that'll kick off even more. We're not that far from uh, Upland game, and we've got archery, elk, and pronghorn and muzzleloader going on, and we're just now tapping into what should have been in full swing, and that's great fall fishing. So there's so much to choose from, Nate. You know, Terry, it is. And the problem is it's all good right now. And that's really the thing is that, you know, in spring, a lot of things kind of taper and kind of find their own niche. And in fall, it all hits at once. And, uh, I mean, literally, as a as a big game hunter, this is your last weekend for your, your combined elk and deer combination archery season. And to be honest with you, it was kind of a, a funky year in, in those regards. You know, we had the late win- winter, kind of a weird spring, and things kind of started off good. And then we had the right kind of in the kind of in the starting point of muzzleloader, really right before muzzleloader, we had a big full moon. It was a very big fall harvest moon, um, and it really got the elk in swing. The problem with that, it really almost brought the elk together, which I haven't seen in a long, long time. Uh, it really made all of the cows kind of cycle together. It kind of timed all the breeding patterns together to where we really didn't have any cows at a breedable state after that. And it takes, uh, it takes quite a while to get those cows. Uh, you know, they're, they're really only breedable for 24 hours in a breeding cycle. Um, and then their next cycle comes is when they're breedable again. And that didn't start until Thursday of this last week. So we had a, we had a big gap of, of some rough elk hunting here in Colorado. Uh, but if you are an archery hunter and you've been able to be out in the woods the last couple of days, uh, Wednesday night, the cycles really started hard for most of the state Thursday. Um, and I'll tell you, the, the last three, four days in Colorado have been epic as far as the elk rut goes um but if you were out a week ago you were probably one of those people saying man are there even elk here like i haven't seen one do they exist do they you know float away to the moon um but in the last couple of days it really is in full swing so the, the elk ruts peaking um obviously the colder temperatures are making the the mule deer spend a little more time on their feet during the day uh so that's huge for all of our hunters out there uh muzzleloader pronghorns going as that ruts in full swing for for the pronghorn um and obviously you have all your small game your bird season and then everybody's anticipating the upcoming rifle season for elk uh which is probably one of the bigger hunts of the year and that's going to be october 12th um so we're really gearing up for that those elk are going to be bugling for that season uh so we're excited about that and i actually have a seminar uh coming up this week at sun enterprise on october 1st uh excuse me on on tuesdays that seminar uh talking about how to approach and really have a more successful first rifle hunt. Uh, that's going to be at Sun Enterprise at 6 p.m. Uh, this coming up Tuesday. Um, and then obviously we have fall fishing. So there's a lot going on as a Colorado outdoorsman. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things this year showed everybody, uh, and it's going all the way back to spring fishing, where we had that late, cool, wet weather all the way into well, the end of June. We didn't get hot weather till July. And then it got extremely hot. And now we're getting a late fall because it got so warm that it's almost like we pushed summer out a month. And if you were looking <laughs> at your notebooks and comparing your fishing and hunting experiences 
through the last couple of years, um, boy, you hurt yourself hunting and fishing memories this year. <laughs> that is true. That is very, very much true. Uh, just a different year, but the biggest thing is just to to adapt to it and do everything you can to to stay on top of it. And um, I think a lot of us fall into those patterns of season date instead of condition date. Um, you know, when in reality, you hope as an angler to to follow trends, follow bait fish, follow water temperatures, follow water levels. Um, you know, watch the grass as a hunter. You kind of watch all that stuff. And you know, I I try hard not to get caught up on dates because it gets you. you know, it does. It, it makes or breaks your confidence being a date person uh, opposed to a conditions person. So following conditions and trends like that will definitely help you out uh, more so than following dates. Uh, you know, from previous stuff because again, the, the cycles tend to tend to reproduce themselves, but the, the date's not as much, especially as we have some of our crazy conditions here in Colorado. One of my favorite writers, John Garrick, he times his uh, stream fishing by when the hummingbirds arrive and when they leave. I, I mean, he, I, 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 I 100% can believe that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's just because he knows that the temperatures are going to affect their migration so much. But yep. it's kind of segued into fishing. What is going on out there? Are we seeing fall conditions already? Or are we still? We are 100%. You know, everything's taken off. Uh, we, You know, the, the whole team, I've actually been in the woods more than I have been on the water. Uh, but my entire team has been out hard. Um, and, you know, like the, the pike bite is through the roof. And that's really one of our biggest signs of fall. You know, the trout get excited early. Uh, so the trout get excited. They start doing their thing early. And it kind of, you know, it's like, man, it's fall here. The trout are firing up. But really for us, it's when the pike start getting super active. Um, you know, they basically put on a lot of weight uh, in about a two-and-a-half, three-week period getting ready for the upcoming winter because once that water gets really cold, uh, they drastically slow their system. So we always kind of watch the pike, and that's kind of our indication of that true fall pattern. Uh, and about six to seven days ago is when the fall pike just started taking off. Um, so, yes, the, the fall conditions are here. So, you know, we've been doing a lot of pike fishing in the South Park area, spinning 11-mile terriol. Uh, all are fishing great for pike. The big trout at Antero and Spinney uh, are fishing very well. Uh, pike at Williams Fork is going very strong. Pike at Stagecoach is going very strong. Um, so that, that fall pike for those big predators is, is very phenomenal. Uh, and then the walleye bite it continues to be good. Um, you know, Terry, we, we talk about this all the time, and you and I joke about people getting ready to fish the Pro Tour. Um, Chatfield right now is one of those reservoirs that is going to build your confidence as an angler, especially um, with fall patterns. There's a lot of anglers that do very well in spring and summer with live bait, and they do that, but they don't quite capture the reaction fishing of the fall, the jigging wraps, the blade baits, the spoons. Uh, but literally, our shad population at Chatfield, uh, right when our shad spawned, the water temperature dropped about two and a half degrees. Um, and that's all it takes to just absolutely annihilate that shad population. Um, so we're sitting on, I don't know what, maybe maybe we're down 80%, maybe even a little more on our shad population. Uh, we have enough food to where the fish are going to be fine. They're living They're You know, everything's good. We're not going to have like a, a walleye kill off. Um, but I will say that the fish are fairly skinny um, and very, very approachable to us, the fishermen. Um, so right now at Chatfield, we're still catching fish on live bait. Uh, you know, right now I'd say instead of like the live bait rigs, I would use like a jig head and a crawler, a twister tail and a crawler. Uh, jigging wraps are doing very well. Blade baits are doing very well. Spooning is going very well. Um, so the walleye bite is just phenomenal at, at Chatfield. Uh, Cherry Creek's starting to do very well as, uh, as well, but I would say that Chatfield's definitely the, 
the peak of that walleye bite. So I'd say if you're a walleye angler, this is the year to spend some time on Chatfield because, again, it's going to teach you how to fall fish with fish that are not quite as picky as a traditional fall fish. Uh, so we're excited about that. And with the, kind of the concept of walleye talking, uh, the Colorado Walleye Association has their fall tournament coming up here. Uh, so they're excited about that. That's going to be up in northern Colorado. Uh, and I also heard announcements today uh, that Bass Pro Cabela's has teamed up with Colorado Walleye Association. They're going to do a massive walleye seminar, kind of a walleye expo, uh, this coming spring. I believe that's going to be April 4th. Uh, and with that, uh, I know myself, I'm going to be speaking and kind of hosting the entire event. Uh, but we got names like Keith Cavias coming in to talk at that seminar uh, and a lot of things going on there. So uh, if you're talking walleye stuff, go check out the Colorado Walleye Association's uh, Facebook page or website. Again, they have a fall tournament coming up here very quickly, uh, as well as uh, some major things coming in the spring with walleye. So uh, really excited about the, the walleye concepts going on right now. Well, I want to uh, exp- expand a little bit on what you were talking about, the walleyes, too. And uh, Chatfield tends to be a little cooler than Cherry Creek. And with the reduction in shad, those fish are hungry, like you said. Now, Cherry Creek, I think the shad probably came through okay. It's a little warmer lake. There's still usually an overabundance there. But what we're looking for in Cherry Creek and probably Pueblo, too, is for a little cold weather to stress those shad, which we really haven't had much yet. But that's got to be right around the corner. You would think. I, I agree. I mean, no matter what, I mean, you, you get two concepts with fall conditions on shad. I mean, we hope to get a, a massive cold front just to get a little bit of a shad die-off, which doesn't always happen in Colorado. You know, a thread-thin shad is where you, you know, in the south where you get these bigger kills, and it really, you know, increases fishing. Our gizzard chads tend to be on a little bit of the tougher side, so we don't necessarily get a lot, of, a lot of shock and kill, but what we do get is a lot of gathering, and that's one of the biggest things I'd say that's really the fall bite, like you said, your Cherry Creeks, your Pueblos, is right now the shad are still kind of spread out, so your walleyes are spread out. They're well-fed and spread, which makes it tough on an angling situation. But the second you get some colder weather, get that water temperature to drop a little bit, the shad start to ball up, and you hear those terms, you know, big shad balls. And you can really drive around and find those big groups of shad, and those walleyes start gathering on those. Um, and the second the walleyes gather, it just ups your odds and angler because now you have a lot more fish to fish for, fish through, uh, and it drastically kind of helps things out. You also start to see the walleyes relate to structure more the second those shad ball up. So once those shad gather, you're going to see the walleye sitting on those points, sitting on those roadbeds, sitting on the underwater contour, uh, which drastically helps out because right now, we have a small portion of these fish sitting on structure, and uh, the other portions of the fish are really suspended on that bait right now. Once they all gather on structure, uh, everything becomes a little easier to target and just really easier to find uh, as far as the angling goes. You know, one bite we don't talk about a lot, and, and I guess we sometimes take it for granted, but as these water temperatures cool, and they're, they're gonna, we're going to catch up, and the water's going to get cold, but the front-range trout bite, they, the lakes are going to be stocked heavily going into the fall to accommodate ice fishermen and so they can grow over the winter. There's a lot of holdover fish that seem to almost vanish during the summer because they head for deeper, cooler water. But as that water gets cold and those trout start moving towards shore, that's a bite that's overlooked a lot, Nate. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we say it every year how big some of these trout can be. You know, obviously our mountain fish are, are feeding on bugs and studs and, and this, which makes them big. Uh, when you take a big rainbow and you throw them into a gizzard shad type forage, you know, all your front range fisheries, your pueblos, your trap, your horse tooth, 
they grow some very big trout. And even if you're not looking for the pickup trout, you have numbers of trout. So I always tell people this, you know, especially as you start getting in here to the second week of October, you can go to the North Shore Boat Dock at Chatfield. I mean, right there where you launch your boats, ton of activity. And there's so many lights in that parking lot, the shad gather in there. Uh, so you get big holdover trout piling into that little bay. Uh, you get just normal trout in that bay. And then you also get stocked in that bay. Um, so, I mean, right there is a great place for, for any angler. You know, whether you have kids or just looking for a good trout bite, that boat dock holds a lot of fish. And you're also going to catch some big smallmouth mixed in there um, and the possibility of even some walleye kind of coming in there. Uh, but no doubt, the inlets are going to start flowing or your inlets get, get some flow. They still attract some fish. Um, but, yes, you definitely start seeing those trout coming into that shallower water uh, this time of year and have a lot of opportunity and some really big fish. You're absolutely right. So, Nate, if somebody wants to book a trip or more information, how do they get a hold of you? You know, you can go to our Facebook page, Tightline Outdoors. You can always go to our website, tightlineoutdoors.com. I'm actually going to be launching a, a new website here real soon, so we're excited about that. Uh, also, we want to tell everybody, stay tuned. In the next two weeks, uh, October 15th is a big date. We're going to open up uh, season tickets for ice addiction. So uh, a lot of people heard about our ice fishing tournament. The first place prize is $10,000 cash per event. Uh, the first availability for tickets for that go on sale October 15th. So stay tuned to our Facebook page for more information on that. I promise you're going to want to take advantage of that. It's going to be a short window uh, for these season tickets, so make sure you watch that. And Obviously, we have a Sun Enterprise seminar this coming Tuesday, 6 p.m. Big game. Make sure you come to that. We'll answer <coughs> Excuse me. We'll answer all your questions, uh, so come to that. We also have our Walleye and Bass League on Wednesday at Chatfield. Uh, so a ton of stuff going on. Again, everything's at Facebook. Uh, but, again, our league night is great. $20. We have bass, walleye, and carp. Uh, pay it all back out to the to the anglers. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So we'd love to see uh, everybody at all these type of events. All right, my friend. We will talk soon. We'll talk soon. Thank you. All right, Nate Zielinski from Tightline Outdoors. We'll take a quick time out. Then we're going to take you up to a lake we don't talk much about, Dillon Reservoir, and the fishing opportunities there on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Make it come You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. We are going right to the phones. We're going to talk about a body of water that we probably don't pay enough attention to as we travel around the state on our weekly updates to find out what's going on fishing, and that's uh, Dillon Reservoir, and Randy Ford uh, from up there is going to join us. Good morning, Randy. How's it going, Terry? Thanks for having me on. You know, it's going great. Beautiful blue skies down here. What's it like up there? Oh man, it's uh, it's your proverbial fall day up here. We got temps in the mid fifties. The aspens are peaking, sunshine, and it's it's just beautiful up here right now. You pretty much couldn't ask for anything better as far as a nice fall Saturday. Well, and Dillon's not that far from Metro Denver. I mean, really, what an hour and a half drive. Yeah, or less. Yeah, depending on where you're coming from, and obviously depending on traffic. There's no traffic on I-70. Don't even bring that up. <laughs> but, no, it isn't very far. And, you know, it's, it gets overlooked, as I was mentioning. Well, I think, Randy, what happened, you know, we've got a lot of premier fishery lakes in Colorado. And Dillon used to be one years ago, and it kind of cycled through some up-and-down times. And we don't have to go through the whole history of it today because I want to concentrate on what's going on now. And I think it kind of fell, maybe not out of favor, but fell out of notoriety as a fishing destination but, boy, things are changing pretty drastically there, aren't they? It has. You know, um, we've, there's, there's been a lot going on as far as uh, efforts in the fisheries management 
Um, about uh, 10 years ago, in fact, in 2007, they uh, put forth a, a, a real extensive effort on um, stocking Arctic char in the reservoir. Um, that, as we're seeing now, has uh, taken off the, the char peripherating. We're, we're starting to, to um, see actual um, legitimate angling opportunities for those char. Um, the CPW has also been doing a great job on giving us our rainbow trout. Um, we've uh, been getting anywhere from 30 to 50 uh, thousand uh, rainbows every year. And then uh, on top of that, we've been getting close to about a half a million fingerling rainbow trout. And uh, the sole purpose of that is, is to, uh, you know, inject some forage into a, uh, a lake that that's, that's otherwise um, somewhat sterile in that manner. Um, you know, we've just got such clear, clean water up here. We don't have the lower end of the food chain like uh, our other reservoirs do, do. You know, you got Green Mountain north of here. That reservoir has a ton of zooplankton. It's got crayfish. Um, you know, places like Blue Mesa, um, you see these these great uh, salmon salmon fishing, great uh, growth rates on salmon and, and small fish because of that lower end of the food chain. Where up in Dillon, we don't have that. It's all super clear, clean um, mountain runoff water, um, and uh, it it doesn't have that lower end of the food chain. So once a fish hatches in Dillon, it takes it a long time to grow to uh, catchable size. Well, and so the, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say so. Um, you know, with with CPW um, supplementing some forage in there with with some of those fingerlings, that's really helped get some of those fish over the hump into uh, that that better catchable range. You know, some of these brown trout, um, you know, getting them above that 15 inch range into where they stop having to rely on bugs and other things, and they can they can start eating fish and start growing a bit faster. And it's just really helped us out a lot as far as that goes. No, and I want to kind of highlight. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to highlight because it's still a great recreational fisherman. Now, if you're looking for a species that maybe you haven't caught before that's different, the Arctic char really provide that. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, you sent me a picture of an Arctic char that would have broke the state record here just recently. And what a gorgeous fish. Tell people about that. Yeah, you know, um, we're, we're getting some of these char. Like I said, it's been uh, since 2007 um, when they started stocking them. So what we're experiencing now is uh, obviously the fish that were stocked in have had plenty of time to grow a catchable size. But um, it's it's been shown by some studies by about 2013, those fish that they were stocking started to naturally reproduce. And as of 2013, um, it was shown that 33% of the char that were sampled in there were a product of natural recourse. So, um, you know, we're getting into the age now, so to speak, to where some of those naturally hatched fish um, have, have, uh, have grown to catchable size. So when they first stocked them, they'd put three or 4,000 in at a time. Um, relatively, that's not a whole lot of fish. You know, but if, it, you know, say you get 20 or 30 char going to an area and spawn, they're literally going to um, lay thousands and thousands of eggs. So that's where we're starting to see a little bit of a takeoff. Um, we're getting into the time frame now where um, there's there's more and more of those fish that that were naturally hatched that, that are getting bigger. And, and like I said, offering uh, more of a legitimate angling opportunity. How big so, was that recent char that was caught? It was uh, 23 inches and uh, just a hair over five pounds. It would have beat the uh, current state record by almost a pound. But they chose not to harvest it. Is that right? 
Yeah, my client uh, chose chose not to keep it, and um, she she honestly, Terry, she asked for my recommendation, and and I recommended that she release it. Um, you know, that's just a, a special fish. We don't have very many of them in there. Um, it would have been great for my business, but uh, you know, I sometimes I guess you just go with your heart. And uh, we decided to put that fish back and let it get down in there and, and hopefully uh, inseminate some eggs with its uh, really great genetics. Now, we've only got a couple minutes left, Randy, and I want to touch on the other aspect of fishing, Dylan, that you really um, promote and present opportunities to the people. You take care of a lot of the tourists and people who stay up there and a lot of families by taking advantage of those stock trout up there, you take people out on a pontoon boat and you teach them how to fish that basic trout fishing. And I think that's a tremendous, tremendous guide service that you offer there. But also it's an opportunity that's available to people that drive up for the day. So what is the trout fishing like there for the stock trout and maybe a few holdovers? You know, um, we don't see a whole lot of holdover rainbow trout at all, Terry. So we do rely on on the stockings for good rainbow trout fishing. Um, we only got stocked once this year, uh, early on in the summer. That batch of fish, you know, it's kind of spread out. Um, fair amount of them have have died out. So um, you know, what we are picking up are a, the, the few of the holdovers that we do have as far as rainbows go. But right now, what we've been targeting mostly is the uh, brown trout. Um, we've also have kokanee salmon that are really bunching up right now um, for their pre-spawn. Dylan, kokanee salmon spawn really late. You know, you look at some of these other reservoirs, those fish are colored up. They're moving right into the peak of the spawn. Um, we've still got silver four-year-olds um, still, you know, in the pre-spawn mode. So those kokanee are bunching up, so we get people out there. Um, fishing for those this time of year and, and, and fishing for the Browns. And, and like you mentioned, um, our whole MO, so to, so to speak, um, is family-friendly fishing. We, uh, we, we provide um, kids 10 and under fish free. So we try to make it as uh, affordable as we can to get, to get families out and get people out. Um, you know, one of the most important things for us is uh, when I was a kid, I just had this fascination for fishing. My father wasn't into it. Um, he facilitated it for me as much as he could, but he had to rely on information from other people. So going into this, this, uh, deal, open up this guide service. One of my biggest goal is, is to offer that for parents who may not be fishermen themselves, but they've got, um, a born fisherman on their hands, a young angler, and they, you know, they want to facilitate it for them. So the, one of the, uh, funnest things I, I get to do is, is show parents how they, um, can facilitate the sport and um, make fishing available and fun for, for their little anglers, so to speak. Uh, Randy, we are out of time. How would people get a hold of you? Uh, you can just hit our website at fishdillon.com, um, or you can just give me a call direct at 970-485-9560. And if, uh, if you give me a call and, and let me know that uh, you heard about us on Terry's show here, uh, I'll give you 10% off. All right, and we will talk to you as you get close to ice fishing. I know you do a lot of that, too. Thank you, Randy. You're welcome, Terry. Have a great day. You bet. That's Randy, fishdillon.com. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, Ed Gorman's going to join us, and we're going to talk about a great program that Colorado has here for hunting and a little bit about the Upland game on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports. 
America's largest, or Colorado's largest, and one of America's largest ATV and motorcycle dealers. Let's go right to the phone because the next person I'm bringing up is one of my favorite contributors. He manages our uh, Upland game out on the Eastern Plains, Ed Gorman. Good morning, Ed. Morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing great, and I know it's going to be a little early to get a forecast on the pheasants, and I'll get that from you before we're done. But I want to start by talking about a program that I, I've always been just a huge champion of, and I know you're highly involved in it. And, you know, the biggest reason a lot of people don't use the outdoors is lack of access. Well, we have a program in Colorado called Walk-In Access, and you're actually expanding that program. Why don't you tell people initially what the program is about and what the expansion is? Okay, yeah, as, as you said, one of the biggest limiting factors on people enjoying the outdoors is uh, – having access to places to go, uh, whether that be um, small game hunting or something else. It, it's tough to find places to go. So <clears throat> 19 years ago, we decided to uh, kind of step into that fray and uh, follow the lead of some other states that had been very successful and uh, start acquiring access to private lands for the public. And uh, again, I can't hardly believe it's 19 years, but that's uh, been the better part of my career is uh, managing that program. And and this program, um, it provides, it takes, you know, people used to have to you'd drive out, and they still do drive out and ask, you know, farmers if they can hunt their lands and things. But it can be a little bit uh, awkward at times, and, and some people are hesitant to do that. And this removes that obstacle, doesn't it? Yeah, we've done most of that work for you. If you choose to only hunt walking access, we've you don't have to obtain permission for any of those properties. Um, however, if you really want to be a... Um, an avid hunter um, you're definitely going to want to hunt on some private land at some point and uh, I kind of look at it like what better way to know you have a few spots on public that you can rely on and then anything you can find on private land um, is, a, is a bonus and uh, lots and lots of people do that um, I have guys that have shown me 18 years of walking atlases they have uh, used as a uh, scouting guides and uh, they've found lots of good public and private spots that way um and they have a you know kind of a cataloged uh, list of places to go that they've obtained permission or found birds on public land and it's it's quite extensive uh, some of the research that folks have put in and really that's what it takes today it's not it's not as easy as it used to be when i was a kid when you could just pretty much hunt anywhere um people have different different attitudes about that nowadays and uh, walk-in really fills a, a great niche for people well, the other thing it does, too, it gets a commitment from the landowner to actually improve the habitat, too, right? In some cases, yes. Um, most of the fields that we sign up, there's no there's no habitat um, requirement other than it has to be a reasonable place to go hunting. Um, but on some of the properties that we're working with landowners on and our partners at Pheasants Forever, we actually go in and plant the habitat that's um, uh, going to be exemplary upland bird habitat and uh, we plant it with the with the landowners and, and pheasants forever in partnership and and those properties are kind of marked with special signs um but yeah so you know um going in that you know some of it's going to be okay stuff and some of it's going to be fabulous stuff it just you know the, you're never going to get it all all the best um it just doesn't work that way but uh, there's really good good habitat involved in this program so how does a person take advantage of that is there a that they have a used to be yeah. you had to pay a special fee, but now you don't. Yeah, there's no fee. Um, we removed that fee back way back in 2010, 
And uh, to find out about the program is, is, is really easy. Um, a, you can go to a licensed agent and pick up um, one of the two publications that we produce, um, walk-in atlases, either the regular version, which comes out in late August every year, or the late cropland version, which comes out in late October generally. Um, so you can get them, you can get hard printed atlases, or you can, uh, maybe the easiest way is to go on our website, um, go to small game hunting, walk in access, and then start scrolling down to the bottom of the page. You can actually put most of the maps or all the maps on your cell phone. Um, with a, with an outside app, you can have every map right there, um, on your phone or other mobile device. And it's, it's as convenient as it can be. Um, like I said, mo- a lot of people still prefer the printed atlases so they can write on them and make notes, um, but uh, more and more people are downloading the, the mobile versions. Now, you've recently expanded this into another aspect of hunting that I'm kind of excited about. Tell people about that. We did. Um, for the first 18 years of the program, uh, the program was small game hunting only. Um, however, a couple of years ago, we, we did a pilot in the southeast region um, to open lands for big game hunting. And that went really well. Um, so we decided um, last winter to go ahead and open up the entire eastern plains um, to this opportunity so not only can you hunt um, small game species like pheasants and morning doves on many of these properties some of the properties are also open for um, big game hunting aka deer or pronghorn uh, for the most part now are, are the is there a different atlas or is the atlas marked differently for those properties exactly the atlas is marked differently the, the properties that are open to big game hunting are yellow in color with yellow signs in the field. The properties that are open for small game hunting only are white in the atlas and marked with white signs, the traditional white boundary signs. So we're trying to do a little color coordination there to make it easier for hunters. Um, the important thing is when you get to the field or when you, when you use the atlas to get to a field, look at the signs and, and read what they say, and it'll tell you everything you really need to know um, about what opportunities are, are there or legal there. So um, all the normal regulations apply, um, whether it be a, a, a big game slash small game combo property or or small game only. Um, yeah, if it's a big game, you have to have a, a limited big game license you would have received in the drawing this spring. Um, there are no special licenses, um, big game licenses available for these properties. It's just the same standard way of getting a license. You have to draw them, uh, but then this opens up a whole a pretty large um, contingent of properties that you can you can access. Um, of course, conditions of your license also apply. So if it's a, a license that's specific to a game management unit, you can only hunt those properties within that game management unit. But in total, um, there's about 88,000 acres of big game properties out there, um, big game slash small game combo properties, I would call them. And 88,000 acres is a pretty significant um, chunk of land for our first effort here. Oh, absolutely. Now, one of the points I want to make, a lot of people will hunt big game from a stand or a blind. You really can't bring that kind of stuff. And this is walk-in. doesn't mean you can't position yourself before daylight in a really good place or at the end of the day. But it's going to be a lot of walking and stalking. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Most of the most of the deer hunting or pronghorn hunting on the plains is is um spot and stock and that's and it's no different on walk-in there's not really opportunity for tree stands or or other types of ground blinds out there i mean i guess a person could probably carry in a, a pop-up blind if they wanted to but most people don't do that uh, they just kind of spot and stock and wait for the 
animal to bed down and then try to get close enough for a shot. Um, that's that's really how I, I see most of it happening. Most of the land we've signed up is uh, CRP land, um, which is um, Conservation Reserve Program grasslands um, that where you hunt pheasants and quail and other things, and, and those are vitally important to deer, particularly on the eastern plains, uh, maybe a little bit less so to pronghorn, but certainly pronghorn use them at times. Um, so not a lot of, you know, mostly spot and stock hunting. You know, that's my favorite way to hunt, too. Sometimes it's not as effective, but it it's it just seems like a, a more fun way to harvest. I've Even when I used to hunt whitetails in northern Minnesota, that's how I used to love to hunt. Let's take a couple minutes now. I know it's early in the season, and you're going to be interpolating a lot of information. We usually do this later, and I may mm-hmm. call you and get some more information. But what are you seeing with the pheasants in the upland game? So, like you said, we're pretty early. Um, really, I, I make most of my judgment when uh, when my guys are out putting up signs on walk-in properties this uh, in October. Um, generally, that what they're seeing tells me what the forecast looks like. But I will say it looks pretty decent for pheasants. Um, I don't think it's 2011 good, but I think it's pretty good. Probably increased over last year, which was not a bad year. It might have been a kind of a difficult year, but it wasn't a bad year in terms of population. So, um, it looks like to me that the, 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 the young birds I'm seeing are a little bit younger than normal. Um, so that kind of tells me maybe the hatch was delayed a little bit, um, which would kind of fit um, with what we saw with a really late wheat harvest and some other things. The, the cool weather in May um, last spring might have slowed things down a little bit to where hens didn't initiate nests quite as quickly as they normally do. So we have right now there's lots and lots of young birds out there. Um, some of them still kind of in the process of turning colors. Um, so, um, it just looks, looks a little different to me, but like I said, I think there's plenty of them out there. And of course, some, some areas are always better than others. Um, the good news is not a, not a ton of big hail storms that, that we had last year. Um, so that's a, that's a plus. Well, what I'll probably do is whether we get you on the air or not, but I'll, I'll check with you as we get into October and get an update and maybe we can talk about some of the areas that maybe seem better than others. But, you know, in the last, I don't know, 15 years, uh, Colorado's kind of made a mark as not being a bad place to hunt pheasants, Ed. Yeah, it's really not. Um, but what 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 it generally turns into is Colorado. When you when you hunt Colorado, you become a better pheasant hunter um, because you have to you know you have to really become a thinking man's hunter and and work a little bit more, um, spend a little more time thinking about strategy. And those things all pay off when you go somewhere else um, because pheasants are pheasants no matter where they occur. They they act the same. Um, it's just, you know, there may be occasionally less birds in Colorado than some other states, but, you know, in truth, there's not, you know, talking to those guys in other states like I do consistently, there's not a ton of difference between some of the popular areas in western Nebraska and eastern Colorado. There, there's not that much difference. Um, you know, birds may be a little more accessible in various places, and it's, it's just, you know, you just have to become accustomed to, to, to the types of habitat you're hunting, and that's that's a real big one. In Colorado, a lot of our Pheasant hunting spots are really large, um, which makes it more difficult for the hunter. Um, but uh, that, that's just kind of you, once you once you get onto the strategy of it, it's, it's really no different. You're absolutely right. I will check with you in the very least so I can update people. But, Ed, as always, thank you for joining us. Always full of great information. Okay. Thank you, Terry. You bet. That's Ed Gorman. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back. Ronnie Castiglione is going to join us and talk some fall fishing on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. I don't want to let you see
Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us, as he does every other week, is Ronnie Castiglione. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Mr. Terry Wickstrom. How you liking this colder weather? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like summer shifted a month, Ronnie. It started in July, yeah. and it's going. But you know what? Eventually, it's going to catch up, and the bait fish are going to become more and more. They're always part of the presentation and part of finding fish. But I know you want to talk about is this weather does change, how, how to go and take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. This time of year, Terry, it's often all about finding the bait fish. And, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and uh, one of the things I hear is that people struggle a lot of times when they get in and around bait fish. Uh, they struggle to get the, the the fish to bite, you know. They think, oh, there's so much bait around here. What am I supposed to do? But, you know, when those fish are focused on those bait fish, it's an excellent opportunity to get out. You'll catch some of the biggest fish you'll catch all year. And once you get it dialed in, Terry, you know, this time of year, you could definitely run through numbers on any given day. So find the bait, you'll find the fish. It's kind of a common saying. But, you know, there's definitely some 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 keys that go into that, Terry. No, you're absolutely right. There's nuances. I've seen people, a lot of times they'll try to match the hatch by going with live bait. A lot of times when there's that much bait, you need more of a reaction bite, I think. Yeah, absolutely, Terry. You know, trying to fish slow, trying to fish with bait in and around bait fish, uh, that's definitely one of the harder ways to go about it. You know, it's always been my experience that when I'm around bait fish, bait fish that are getting schooled up, bait fish that are actively being pursued by predators, that I want to have a very, very fast, erratic presentation, something that the fish can pick out of the school, something that looks wounded, something that really grabs their attention. And people will be like you know hey there's there's two thousand bait fish down there swimming around at school how how's this fish going to find my my little jerk bait in the middle of it well those fish can absolutely pick out the one wounded bait fish amongst all the healthy ones and if you make that your presentation you make something that looks really wounded something that looks really sporadic and it's trying to get away those fish will hone in on it no problem at all terry you have no problem catching fish take us through a few of the presentations you would use well, you know, the big key, Terry, on any given day is trying to figure out whether or not I'm going to catch the fish vertically or if I'm going to catch them horizontally this time of year. So if it's a horizontal sort of a deer field, Terry, uh, I throw a lot of jerk baits this time of year. Now, now when I say I throw jerk baits, a lot of times, Terry, when I get out there and start the morning and I'm looking for my bait fish, uh, I end up trolling my jerk baits a lot of the times, you know. I'm trolling around, I'm scanning, I've got the, the, the baits out behind the boat. Uh, I'm not necessarily setting up a full trolling pattern or anything like that with planer boards or anything like that. I may just be trolling one rod all by myself, or if I've got somebody with me trolling, you know, two rods each, uh, we have the jerk baits on on there we're trying to dive them to the to the right depth so if if the fish look real shallow maybe it's a shallow running jerk bait maybe it's a deep diving jerk bait if it looks like the the bait fish are holding a little bit deeper i'd say the big key this time of year if you are going to troll in and around bait fish with something like a jerk bait is you need to troll faster than you would have earlier in the year or, or a lot of the year terry uh, it's very very common for me to be scanning and trolling you know upwards of three miles an hour this time of year and the other big key if you're going to be trolling in and around those bait fish is, is to make a lot of turns, Terry, not just to troll in a straight line. I'm trolling around in 
figure eights. I'm zigzagging back and forth. I'm scanning actively with my side scan. I'm looking at my down scan. I'm looking at the balls of bait, and I'm looking for large returns in and amongst the balls of bait, and I'm dropping waypoints on those things. I'm then trolling my presentations through those, and a lot of times that'll be the way we get bit. We troll right through where we saw the, the good returns, and they'll absolutely jump on those jerk baits. Other times we've got to turn back around. We've got to come back to those spots. And then maybe we'll cast the jerk baits in the general area and try to get those fish to bite. But now the thing is, a lot of days, Terry, you'll get out there and they'll absolutely not want to touch anything that's moving horizontally. Well, I've already found the bait fish because I trolled around. I've marked my waypoints on this stuff. I'll come back to them in, in those scenarios and I'll drop vertically on those bait fish, Terry. So if I'm going to drop vertically to the fish, I'm going to be looking at things like jigging spoons a lot of times. Those are excellent presentations for, for fish that are looking for things falling out of those baits, out of those schools of bait, things like that. A jig, you know, a variety of different jigs work really well as as well in that scenario. A, a tube jig is an excellent choice in that scenario. A three-inch gulp minnow, you know, allowed to fall and then ripped up vertically and then allowed to fall is an excellent way to trigger those fish this time of year. Now, now one other thing, and I know we're running short on time, Terry, um, you know, a lot of times for me, you know, maybe the open water stuff's not working. Maybe the fish aren't pushing the bait to the surface. Well, then I'm still going to look for bait fish, Terry, but I'm going to try to run around and try to find where bait fish are hitting the structure. So maybe I'm scanning points. Maybe I'm scanning dams. Maybe I'm scanning some of the ridges out in the middle of the lake. Maybe I'm scanning some of the humps. In that scenario, I'm looking for the humps, the points that have bait fish that are coming to them, and I'm looking to fish right in the area where the bait fish is actually hitting the structure. In that scenario, Terry, a lot of times that jigging spoon is an excellent choice, but that blade bait or that jigging wrap can work outstanding when you can come to a piece of structure and you find that bait is actively being pushed up onto that structure, Terry. I couldn't believe I couldn't agree with you more on everything you've covered. And one of the things, you know, we're we're going to see the water temperatures are just turning. The lakes are a little uh, there's more water in them than there typically is. So we're probably going to see this really start to materialize over the next two three weeks. But it could go well into November, I think, Ronnie. Yeah, it can definitely go well into November. I've caught a lot of my biggest fish in November fishing like that, Terry, especially up on horse tooth back when all those big trout were in the lake. Uh, you know, getting out there, utilizing your electronics if you're on a boat. Um, you definitely want to pay attention to depth control in this scenario, Terry. Uh, pay attention to where you're seeing large returns. Try to get in there and try to figure out what you're seeing. Try to pick out the bigger returns and try to fish right above them. Try to make sure your presentations, try to drop them right in the cones underneath the boat and, and be able to visually see it like you're playing a video game, just like you're ice fishing, Terry. This is the time of year to go out and do that. Now, if you're fishing from shore, Terry, you can still get in on some of that bait fish action it's just you either got to get on some of the steeper banks a lot of times or you got to get into some of the areas of the body of the water where those fish will be congested so inlets and areas like that where those bait fish will run up into the current you can get at those from shore terry and so there's an excellent opportunity either from shore or from the boats but it's definitely this time of year if you're not near the bait a lot of times you're not near the fish terry all right we got to go ronnie but great great information we'll talk to you soon all right, buddy. Have a good one. You bet. Ronnie Castellani from Fishful Think. We're going to wrap things up here. Um, don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. We're going to start featuring our trivia contests on there. A lot of information about the show, a lot of updates. And joining me in the studio, who's about to take over and talk sports with you, Dan Jacobs. Now, Dan, I've decided... I'm either responsible for vaulting you to a successful career or I'm to blame. 
Yeah, no, you. Uh, I've known you a long time. By the way, I do follow your your daughter loves it. I follow your your fa- your, your Facebook page, and then because you're always on there taking pictures with other people's fish, you're like photobombing other people's fish. Oh, geez. and she says she loves it. You know when we call you out on that. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and I give you credit. We did uh, Kyle and I did a great show two three weeks ago. We did the uh, kind of the running theme was the uh, nonsense you were you know spewing about the Eagles versus Beatles. So that kind of carried us through a few it, hours. It, I, I heard that it went after, and I got tons and tons of positive response all against you, just so you okay. know. And, uh, you know, but at, before I go, I know we're cutting into your time. Yes. but uh, before, You can blow up a clock like nobody else. That's like, it's like Sandy Clough in here. Oh, jeez. But I have my own. You and I got to talk offline a little bit. Uh-huh. I think the offense definitely hasn't, for the Broncos, hasn't been world beaters but I still think a lot of the fault comes back to this defense is just underperformed. Well, no turnovers and no sacks. You're not going to win a lot of games that way. No, and uh, not even pressure, really. No. I mean, well, Aaron Rodgers just basically insulting the Broncos, saying, man, I'm just going to go out and have a little scotch. I, I didn't get hit. You know, I got hit one time today. So my uniform's clean. Don't even have to wash it for next week. Thank you, Denver Broncos. If that doesn't change, it's going to be well, it's going to be a long year anyway. But if that doesn't change, it's going to be a really long year. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top. Well, we're already past the top. We'll let us take us so they can introduce Dan and and remember, don't blame me. So I call it-